for Thursday, September 24th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, in recent weeks, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta has made and then reversed major changes to its coronavirus guidance. I think the key to regaining trust is going to be transparency. When we see these kinds of very public reversals, it's incredibly difficult for anyone to know what to make of all of it. Apoorva Mundavili, who covers science and public health for the New York Times, joins me to discuss just what's been happening with the CDC's guidance as of late and what she's found about who is really behind it. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made a declaration that shocked many in the public health world. It said people who'd been exposed to someone infected with the coronavirus didn't need to get tested if they didn't show symptoms. Reporting from the New York Times found that guidance was published despite the objections of CDC scientists. Apoorva Mundavili is behind that reporting. She joins me now to discuss what she found. Apoorva, thanks for talking with me. No problem. I want to talk today about some of the things that have recently been happening at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta that you have been covering for the Times. And I want to start last month when the agency posted some guidance to their website about who exactly should get tested for the coronavirus. Tell me what happened there. So in late August, the CDC came out with new guidance saying that People who have been around someone who's infected but don't have symptoms don't need to get tested. And that came as a huge shock to a lot of public health experts because for months now we've been saying that people can spread the virus even when they don't have symptoms and that it's very important for anybody who's been near someone who's infected to get tested. So the CDC suddenly saying, oh, if you don't have symptoms, you don't necessarily need to get a test. That was just a shock. And so I think some people immediately began to suspect that there was some political meddling and that the information did not come from the CDC directly. So public health officials, even ones I spoke to, were were very surprised to see that guidance. Why was that change made? And specifically, what did the CDC and other U.S. health officials say about making that change? My sources within the CDC 
essentially told me that they were not involved in writing this guidance. They may have written an early version of it, but even in August, they saw a version that was circulated that said some of these things, said had some of this language about asymptomatic people not needing a test, and they really took issue with that. They protested, they made comments, they made corrections and suggestions, and none of those were taken on board. They didn't hear anything more about it, and then all of a sudden, on August 24th, this new guidance dropped, and it looked like nothing they would ever say. So they were very upset about that. And I think that essentially that guidance has a lot of impact on public health and who gets tested and when. I mean, we can all speculate about why the administration might want that. But some of my sources um, suggested that perhaps it could be because when you don't test asymptomatic people, the overall number of cases goes down. And as we know, President Trump has said multiple times very openly that he would like the number of confirmed infections to go down. Were you able to ascertain who ultimately made the decision about this change? Can we point to one or two individuals who authorized this testing guidance change? Well, we know that uh, at the very least, Admiral Brett Giroir at the uh, Department of Health and Human Services was involved. That department oversees the CDC. So he's sort of like a boss to the CDC. Um, and he told me that he was heavily involved in overseeing the editing and coordination of comments on this, that he circulated the document to other members on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, including Dr. Tony Fauci and Dr. Robert Redfield, who's the CDC director, and that all of the um, scientific and medical members of the task force had a chance to comment. It's not clear how much they had a chance to comment or what exactly their comments were, uh, because he oversaw the coordination of it. But what's also confusing is that he insisted at the same time that he's actually very much for asymptomatic people getting tested and that he's in support of surveillance when you test you know, anybody regardless of symptoms. So there's some confusion there on exactly what the intention of this guidance was, but um, it's quite clear that the HHS was heavily involved. And this is an agency that's been in the news recently. A number of Trump administration political appointees, it's been shown by the New York Times and outlets like Politico that they actually tried to tamper with some of the CDC's kind of forward-facing messaging. A name people might know is Michael Caputo, um, who went on a, a, a Facebook rant recently about there being kind of people who were against the administration, the Trump administration at the CDC. Can we link this story of this testing guidance change to that kind of other story about, you know, HHS officials trying to meddle in what the public health agency is doing? I think it's all part of the same bigger story, which is that the CDC has for decades enjoyed a relative amount of independence where, you know, a document that's of huge national importance may go to the HHS, may go to the White House even to just have a look. But ultimately, it's the science that prevails and what's been happening in this administration, especially in the last few months, is that they are repeatedly altering and changing documents that um, really should only be written by scientists. So I think it's all part of the same story in a way. The other documents that you were talking about are these MMWR reports. They're weekly scientific reports that are published by the CDC, and they are hugely respected. And they're actually quite scientific and nerdy. So it's it's really confusing to me why the administration would want to be so deeply involved in them. 
And, you know, they've also forbidden CDC scientists from talking on the record to journalists and to describe their own work. So all in all, it just really leads to a lot of confusion over what the CDC scientists think, what the CDC science actually shows, and whose agenda are we looking at. And if we think about this testing guidance change, I mean, the, the way this story played out is it was last week, I believe, that the CDC reversed this guidance saying that if you had been exposed to someone who was infected, you should get tested, even if you're not showing symptoms. How did that change come about? Well, what my information told me is that actually that that document was already being revised when my story came out. So they there was already a document that had been circulated at some level of the CDC um, and had been written at some level by the CDC, but was again with the HHS and with the task force for corrections and edits and was expected to come out sometime on Friday. And it did come out last Friday, but I think they did hear the public outcry loud and clear because in my story, for example, the CDC scientists made a point of saying the document had certain things that they would never say, like referring to the virus as COVID when it's the disease that's COVID. And the new version that went up on Friday didn't have any of those things. So clearly they did pay attention to what was being said about the document, but I think it was already in the works. There was a period of maybe three-ish weeks that this guidance had changed on the CDC website. Is there any way to really wrap our minds around the impact that that guidance change had for those three weeks? Certainly, it's something that got a lot of attention. But is this something that actually reached the everyday person who might not necessarily be paying close attention to what the CDC has to say? Did this have any kind of on the ground effect? I think it probably did. It's really hard to know exactly to what degree because I think some state uh, public health departments and some physicians and, and doctor groups, you know, really opposed it and said that they still thought that everybody should get tested regardless of symptoms if they've been around someone who's infected. And hopefully that messaging came through. But I think there, you know, there are some real world implications. For example, if the CDC is saying you don't need to get a test, does that mean that insurance companies then stopped reimbursing. Um, I'm not sure if that really happened. Uh, I, I'm sure I've got colleagues looking into that issue, but everybody pays attention, basically, when the CDC says something. And I think that particular document got a lot of attention. So I would not at all be surprised if it did actually have a massive public health impact during those weeks. And thinking about some other recent changes to CDC guidance, last week, the same day that CDC reversed its guidance on testing, they posted another piece of guidance about the way that the coronavirus is transmitted, focused on airborne transmission of the virus, only to take that guidance down a few days later. So what's happening there? Yes. A good question. A lot of confusion. Um, my best information on that one suggests that it was actually a genuine error, which is shocking from an agency like the CDC during a pandemic at a time when it's already being so closely scrutinized because of all of the missteps. But that's what I hear, that the document was not quite ready for public consumption, but there was some confusion um, and it was put up prematurely and that it's still being worked on. Now, in this case, I do find that a tiny bit more believable because it did say certain things that were surprising to experts. 
For example, it said that the coronavirus is airborne. And that term, you know, which it might sound the same as saying the coronavirus is transmitted by aerosols. But when you say the word airborne, that means a lot in the world of hospitals. It means that hospitals have to have certain negative pressure rooms, they're called, in which to isolate patients. It means that the healthcare workers have to wear N95 masks everywhere, not just, you know, during certain procedures. So it would mean a huge difference, both in terms of patient care and in terms of the PPE, the, the personal protective equipment, that has to be available to healthcare workers all over the country. And so it's not the kind of thing that you can just drop in. And people were very surprised that the CDC did that. And there's a lot of expertise saying, you know, maybe that's not quite the case, that maybe we don't actually need that level of patient care or healthcare worker protection in hospitals. So um, I think it's possible that that's one of the pieces that wasn't quite ready for public consumption. That sentence needs to be massaged more and be more clear so it doesn't have earth-shattering implications for hospitals. So there were a couple of things, you know, like that, that seem like maybe they do need to be edited a bit more before they can be publicized. Talk to me about how close this guidance from the CDC about how the virus is transmitted is actually to what scientists think right now. I mean, was this CDC guidance posted and then retracted? Was it right or was it off base? I think it was mostly right. Um, the one thing that I mentioned about, you know, it emphasizing the virus being airborne, I think that needed a little bit more tweaking. But overall, in terms of acknowledging the importance of aerosols in spreading the virus, I think it was a hugely important step. So what are droplets and what are aerosols? You know, that answer really depends on whom you ask, which has been one of the main reasons of confusion and frustration, uh, both among scientists and among journalists, frankly, and I'm sure for the public. It means different things to aerosol engineers than it does to infection disease control people than it does to doctors. But ultimately, really what we need to know is that the virus can be transported by droplets, big or small, that people release when they cough, sneeze, talk. And so it's very important that people take precautions indoors. Because what the research has been showing and what the CDC document referred to is that inside, when you have a room that's poorly ventilated, where there's not great airflow, small aerosols can linger in the air for a lot longer than the droplets that somebody might cough or sneeze, the bigger ones. They can travel a lot further than six feet, which is this magic number that we've been telling everybody to distance. And that has a lot of implications for how people protect themselves in indoor spaces, in buildings, what they should think about in terms of um, air filters and HVAC systems. And so it was very, very important and very overdue for the CDC to address this issue. One thing that I have heard from the doctors and public health experts that I've been talking to over the course of the pandemic is that, especially with the new virus, our understanding of it changes. I'm wondering here if it is fair for us to look at this guidance about airborne transmission from the CDC and say, oh, here's a mistake the CDC has made. Could this also not just be seen in the light that the CDC is refining how they understand this? I mean, should we be giving the CDC more of a break here, understanding that a lot of their guidance about how the virus works is, has changed over time? That's a very fair question. And it's a really great point. I think 
any time when there's a brand new virus and there are a lot of people who are infected and there's just a lot of different kinds of symptoms that are coming up and it's unclear where people are catching it, you know, it's hard to really pin down what's happening, what the primary mode of transmission is and all of those things. However, I think we have known for several months now that aerosols are important. I think the science, the research has been there for weeks and weeks. I wrote in July that the WHO, the World Health Organization, was being too slow to acknowledge this and too slow to recommend universal face coverings for everybody. You know, everybody should wear cloth masks. And even the WHO conceded in July that aerosols are important and the CDC has taken even longer. It's now September. It's, you know, nine months into this pandemic, really. And we've known probably since March or April that um, airborne transmission is likely to be pretty important. And that doesn't mean that it's only transmitted by air or that it's airborne in the way that measles is, where, you know, people should panic about outdoor transmission. But at the very least, the CDC could have acknowledged that this is important for indoor spaces. And who knows, if they had done that, it might have made a difference in the southern states where people were indoors with their ACs on. And, you know, there's some suggestion from scientists that that actually contributed quite a lot to the surge in cases in the south in the summer. For folks who maybe don't cover the CDC, like you do, like I do, I mean, it is a big agency. It's very kind of fragmented, and there's lots of different players often in in getting information out to the public. I mean, how much of a role do you think just kind of the structure of the agency plays here? Um, Because, you know, you don't have to look very far to see former agency heads, Dr. Tom Frieden uh, among them, who ran the CDC under uh, President Obama, really saying that all this trouble that we're seeing in the agency is not the career people. It's not the career scientists who are dedicated to it, but just a few maybe political actors at the top. Talk to me a little about that. You know, I think that the supporters of the CDC, the people who've come from the CDC world, like Dr. Frieden and Dr. Besser, you know, they have a point. I think the CDC scientists are very hardworking, you know, unlike what Michael Caputo may have suggested that they, you know, are in their sweatpants and only come out to take shots at the administration. I think the the reverse is probably true. I think they've, they've mostly been working with their heads down and, you know, working as fast as they can to get good guidance out. Um, but what you said about the CDC being this big rambling beast, I think that also does have an effect on how quickly they can get things out. It's good and bad. You know, every time they have a guidance, a document that has to go out, it's owned by a particular department, but then it still has to go to scientists and other divisions for whom that document is relevant. And everybody kind of has to comment and sign off. That makes sure that the document is excellent and it reflects the most current science, but it is a slow and painstaking process. So the CDC is not exactly known for being super fast in a pandemic like this. Um, On the other hand, that might be a good thing because you don't want to say one thing one day and then change it again the next day and, you know, keep contradicting yourself because that also erodes public trust. Now, in this pandemic, all of that has happened anyway. And I think One of the things that a lot of public health experts have brought up is if we want to be able to face a new pandemic, the CDC and other public health systems in our country really have to rethink how they're structured, what data systems they have, how quickly they can respond, how modern their tools are, and how rapid their communications are. I think the communication piece has been really disappointing during this pandemic. 
What is your sense of the, you know, the, the reporting that you and your colleagues have done and that, you know, other outlets have done about kind of all this turmoil at the CDC? What do you think it means for our nation's response to the pandemic going forward? I mean, the CDC still is going to lead, say, efforts like distributing a vaccine if we ever get one. Is it your sense that the CDC can maybe redeem themselves here? Reflect on that for me. I think the key to regaining trust is going to be transparency. I think when we see these kinds of very public reversals, these very confusing, you know, yes, we think this, no, we don't, the document is up, the document is gone. It's incredibly difficult for anyone, you know, let alone people who don't really follow the CDC as closely as you and I do, to know what to make of all of it. So I think if they want to regain the public's trust, if they want to be seen again as this trusted source of information and and also resources, they really need a clean slate, if you will, where there are leaders in charge who can come out and say the CDC is independent, that it's going to do what its scientists think is the best thing to do. There will be no meddling. And then to actually prove that, to show that in action and to be very transparent when changes happen about why they happened. It's okay to change guidance. As you were saying earlier, in a pandemic, things do change and things are evolving. Um, so some amount of that is natural. But I think when that happens, it's really key for the CDC to be front and center, talking directly to the public, explaining what the documents say, why they were changed, what the changes mean for the average person, and to just be very, very transparent. And I think if we can do that, there's some hope of the agency regaining public trust. But at the moment, just in the in the current political climate and looking to the vaccine, I'm not really sure how any of this is going to play out. I think we're all just watching to see what happens. Apoorva Mundavili covers science and public health for The New York Times. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. Special thanks to Stephen Key. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. There you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps new people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.